the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. And today I have a pleasure to have with me Dr. Jonathan Ilgen. Am I doing that right? Ilgen. Ilgen, perfect. He's a professor in the Department of Medicine, Emergency Medicine. He's the Vice Chair of Faculty Development of Education and the Director of the Medical Education Research Fellowship at the University of Washington. I've known John for a few years now, so I'm, I'm very excited to have this conversation with him. Thank you and welcome to the Curiosity Habit. Thank you, Sarah. Great to be here. Thank you. So as, as we usually start these conversations, and as I mentioned before, this is just about getting to know the person behind the research. So to me, it makes sense that the first questions that I usually ask is about how people grew up, because I don't know them. So I, if you don't mind, can you give us a little bit of a perspective into who was John growing up? What interests did he have? Uh, who were influential in your life? All that kind of sort of interest that surrounded you in your curiosities as you were growing up? Sure. Um, well, that's a great question. I So I think probably first the, the, the important thing to know is I, my parents are both college professors. And so that informed a bit of kind of my life experience because my young years, we were moving around as my parents were looking for, for tenure. And so I was born on the East Coast and bounced around for a few places before settling in Los Angeles um, as an eight-year-old. Um, so grew up um, in a college town um, called Claremont, which is uh, a bit east of Los Angeles. Um, and my my parents are, uh, my dad's a political scientist and my mother's a molecular biologist. So I think that very much informed kind of the childhood I had, we had, my dad would have his seminars in our living room and I would go in and help my mother uh, pour her gels for her various different labs she was running. Um, so um, I think that that kind of spirit of being in that kind of community of learning and being around people who were interested in a variety of different things um, was very much kind of part of um, my identity as a kid and um, certainly my brother, I have a younger brother, my brother and I were, um, you know, a lot of our friends were the kids of other college professors. And so it was a really um, wonderful community to be part of. Um, I guess other things that are probably important, the, the community that I lived in was a college town. There are five small liberal arts schools there. So, um, and it's also, it's in Los Angeles. So I think um, culturally and ethnically and um, experientially a really diverse place with a lot of different, um, I guess, different life experiences that were intersecting there. Um, and so uh, it felt like a really um, wonderful place to be challenged in lots of different ways. And um, from um, sort of differences in language to just differences in life experiences. Um, I had a really um, diverse group of friends and and different interests and those sorts of things. What kind of activities did you like doing when you were a, a little boy, eight years old? 
So I, I love soccer. Um, oh. And so that was a big part of my life. Um, my brother and I both played club soccer. Um, and that occupied a lot of our weeks and weekends. Um, I, I also ran track and uh, I played trumpet in the marching band. So um, there were there were weekends where my parents would drive me to a parade in the morning and then a you know club soccer game and maybe a track meet in the middle and then another performance for the band in the evening so I I now as a parent fully recognize um, just how much of a uh, commitment and how lucky I was to have parents who were able to do that but uh, it was a it was a fun and busy childhood with a lot of different activities okay I'm moving on into high school uh, what was your experience of that did you have a favorite topic that started to kind of give you a sense of where you're heading? Yeah, I, I, well, it's interesting you say that, you asked that. I think um, science always felt kind of central to who I was. And I think part of that was just, you know, having a mother who was a scientist and, and having some experiences doing some science with my mother on a very surface level. Um, I think that was always interesting to me, although I've, I've always really enjoyed kind of um, a lot of different experiences and, and really enjoyed things like, you know, English and history and those other things. So that very much led me towards pursuing a college experience that was in the liberal arts that would allow me to, to take classes in a lot of different things. I wasn't sure that I wanted to be anything science related. I certainly wasn't sure I wanted to be a physician. That was not clear to me. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think I've always enjoyed kind of feeling like different parts of my brain were being um, scratched in different ways. And so um, I think that that started in high school. I went to a public high school, had really great teachers, um, again, was some, surrounded by some really smart friends. And so I felt challenged in lots of different ways. Yeah. And what was the turning point that kind of got you into thinking, well, maybe medicine or maybe something related to that after high school? Yeah, it was pretty late, actually. I, I went to a small liberal arts school, uh, Williams College in, in Massachusetts, and uh, Williams is in the middle of nowhere. It's in rural um, Massachusetts. There's not a lot of um, sort of big university infrastructure or cities around there. Um, and so even exploring med medicine wasn't particularly easy there. I, I was doing, you know, I, I played soccer in college and I was busy with my, I was a biology major. Um, there wasn't a lot of time outside of school to do, you know, shadowing experiences or things like that. So um, Williams had a, had a really lovely uh, winter study program in uh, in the January gloom of Massachusetts every year. So you'd return from your holiday vacation and you'd take just one course, which was generally quite uh, easy during the January month. Everybody was just taking one course. And so my junior year, uh, there was a program to shadow physicians that had been set up for many years. And I uh, was paired with a wonderful pediatrician who'd been a small town pediatrician for years in the neighboring town of North Adams. And um, it was just wonderful. Like he, he was actually caring for um, patients who were the grandparents, who were the grandchildren of patients that he'd cared for. He'd been in that, the practice that long. So you'd come, you know, he'd be taking care of the baby and their mother uh, was also a former patient of his and their mother was also a former patient of his. And so um, it really, felt, you know, it felt like a really wonderful um, integration of science and, you know, all of the challenges of biology and that kind of stuff. But then also this really uh, lovely relational aspect um, of things that I found really um, compelling. So that really was, I think, the turning point. So that was my junior year of college. And I think after that, it was pretty clear that that's the direction I was going to try to go. 
Right. And yet you became emergency doctor. So did you consider pediatrics at all because of that person? Yeah, very much so. I I went to medical school thinking very much I was going to be a pediatrician and did all sorts of explorations of pediatrics during the times before I went to my clerkships and then got to my clerkships and it just didn't feel like quite the right fit for me. Um, And also that, that longitudinal thing that we talked about as the sort of the original impetus also became less important than some of the other things that were interesting to me, um, uh, which is not to say you don't have longitudinal care in the emergency department, we sometimes do, uh, but but there were other things that were higher in priority as I made my de- decision about a career. Yeah. So what, what was it about emergency medicine that really attracted you? Because I see this pattern also going on with the students that we work with, they come with an idea and then clerkship arrives and then they change. So yeah. what is it about clerkship? <laughs> Well, it's interesting. I was really lost. I uh, I really enjoyed my third year clerkships and found myself, you know, imagining myself doing all sorts of things from psychiatry to general surgery to some of the surgical subspecialties and um, really enjoyed my family medicine rotation as well. But none, none of them kind of felt like the right fit. I think the things about emergency medicine that really spoke to me when I finally did my fourth year clerkship was I, I loved the idea of feeling like I had a window into a community. I, you know, everybody can come and see us anytime. And that's mm-hmm. sort of our, our mantra that the doors are open and seeing that cross section of the of the world around the hospital, I think was really um, interesting to me. And also felt like a, a, a space where I felt like advocacy could be really um, a sustaining thing for me. It felt like I had a bunch of people where this was their only source of access and care. Um, the medicine is also really interesting, and it's it's you know, these undifferentiated problems with a variety of complexity, and from a sort of cognitive and um, sort of challenge perspective, every shift presents things I've never seen before, or things that are not yet differentiated to even know what we're dealing with yet. And so I I really enjoyed that challenge, and you know recognizing that I have the privilege of working in a setting where actually I can do a lot of um, unraveling with testing and things like that, which you know made that experience just really interesting. You could actually work through a problem um, in real time, um, which I which I greatly enjoyed. Yeah. And then the the switch or the transition to medical education, where was that interest in education in medicine? How did it start for you? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I, you're probably hearing each of these questions, I'm, I begin with the caveat that I was pretty confused. Um, <laughs> I was pretty confused when I went to residency. Uh, I, I, I literally applied to residency the first week of my emergency medicine clerkship. So I hadn't really thought beyond even figuring out that even emergency medicine was the right fit for me, not necessarily what I would do with, with emergency medicine. And so I went to residency, you know, with the idea that it, that was going to be another period of exploration and and was very interested in pediatric emergency medicine. And that kind of fell by the wayside relatively quickly in my training for a variety of reasons. I was really interested in global health and had done, actually spent some time in Uganda as a resident doing that um, experience, which was wonderful and challenging and and also really hard to be apart from my my spouse um but i think through that whole experience it always felt i always felt this pull towards education i think that's sort of in my bones from my childhood um but i actually found myself feeling like i wasn't particularly good at it i i was you know becoming a supervisory resident i didn't really know what i was doing i was feeling like i wasn't 
um, I could I could feel through the people I was supervising that I, I wasn't doing a particularly good job. And so um, as I started thinking about sort of life after residency during my, my fourth year, um, and I started applying for jobs, it, it felt like I was selling snake oil, like I was selling myself as a person who was going to be focused in education, but really didn't have much of a uh, you know, a training in education or, or time to kind of refine those skills. And so I ultimately ended up kind of pulling my applications back from a lot of places and applying to uh, medical education research fellowships of which, or medical education fellowships, of which there were only two that I knew of at the time, as we, we were looking primarily towards the West Coast. Um, and so uh, I was very fortunate to stumble into a couple of great programs with wonderful people and um, ultimately ended up going to Oregon um, after residency um, for two years of, of sort of dedicated time to, to think about education and think about scholarship and education and my identity as an educator and those sorts of things. Hmm. And then you did you return to residency? It was after residency. This was after residency. Oh, so I, okay. I did my residency in Boston and then moved to Portland uh, at OHSU for two years. And then um, in 2010, moved from there to Seattle, uh, where I've been since. Okay. And, and after that experience in medical education as a fellowship, how did you feel as an educator and in in the and then the, the idea of doing research in medical education because those are two different things. Yeah, that so that was a big shift for me. I, I would say I I went to fellowship with absolutely no interest. Well, maybe not no, but very little interest in research. I had uh, really thought about things like being a residency program director or or some sort of student. Um, leadership position in a medical school or things like that. Um, and I think, you know, that was when I was applying for a fellowship. And I think as a fourth year resident, I was a chief resident and it allowed me to kind of see behind the curtain into the operations of what it was to be a, a assistant program director or program director. So I, I had arrived to fellowship already having a reasonable idea that that wasn't that wasn't actually the role that I wanted to do. I think um, I really appreciate the people who do that work. It's hard, but it felt a little bit farther away from the direct teaching and the direct sort of work with students or residents that I was hoping to do. Um, and so, you know, fellowship was, it gave me an opportunity to try a bunch of different things. We um, were able to be part of small groups at the medical school with students. I was, I worked with another, my co-fellow to develop a course um, that was simulation based around uh, kind of undifferentiated complaints that we um, built and tried out with students and got to work really closely with um, a group of students over, I think about a two month period, um, just practicing different cases. Um, and so I, I think that really helped me to see that I, I really like direct contact and I actually really like working with students, um, love residents too, but for, for whatever reason, I think the, the kind of growth and maturation of the early skills really spoke to me. And then I, I was very fortunate to stumble into a course that was led by uh, Judy Bowen um, around um, essentially education theory that, that got me thinking about um, you know, things that have broader application and, and the ways that we kind of think about using theory to inform what we do. And, and Judy was very generous and brought me under her wing. And we sort of started thinking about some research projects. And that really spiraled me into this interest around clinical reasoning mm -hmm. and, and very much brought me into a community. So, you know, Judy is you know, very well um, established and connected and, um, and, 
was able to to help me feel connected with others very quickly. So she brought Kevin Eva onto a project, and then we presented our findings. and uh, And Jeff Norman happened to be in the room, and then Jeff Norman and I had a conversation, and that brought me into his wonderful community at McMaster with um, uh, Jonathan Sherbino and Sandra uh, Montiero. And so I think all those things kind of continued to grow. And I think especially as I saw the the translation of some of the stuff that we were um, finding into my practices, it just felt like a natural harmony between sort of scholarship and theory and actually my role as an educator. I could feel myself using those things um, and bringing those things from my space as an education person into the scholarship as well. And I, I really liked that combination. Okay, so your area broadly speaking is clinical reasoning. And I'm curious to know what part of your personal experience or professional experience really spoke to that for you to decide, yeah, this is going to be my research program. Yeah, well, I mean, the nice thing about clinical reasoning is it's pretty much everything that we do. So if um, uh, you could probably find connections with, with pretty much any field, I think as an emergency physician, it's what I do all day, right? I, I have patients who present with symptoms and not diseases. A lot of what I spend my day doing is um, thinking carefully about what they say and what we find on exam and and how we translate those um, findings in addition to the tests we do towards something that helps to enact a plan. So I think that the the clinical reasoning, I certainly feel inside myself a lot at work and supervise trainees from a variety of different fields um, doing that same experience and, and can feel those developmental differences um, very uh, acutely in that context. I think the other thing that's probably worth just um, mentioning is that I was lucky to, to fall into a, a role here at the medical school. We have a longitudinal mentorship program called the Colleges. And one of the important um, parts of that role is we do um, foundational skill development around interviewing patients, examining patients, um, sort of foundational professional skills like working with interpreters or, or you know, breaking bad news, those sorts of things. So um, I, I was also feeling it very much in my role as an educator in that space in terms of how to how to ask questions in ways that you were likely to get, you know, the answers that you were that would be useful to you, sort of how you navigate problems before you have answers to what those problems are. Um, and so I found myself, I think, um, sort of along that developmental spectrum um, from very brand new medical students all the way to senior residents to my own practice, um, mm -hmm. seeing how clinical reasoning was was very different um, in those different things. And that, you know, that obviously got me excited and interested in exploring how that changes over time and, you know, how it looks different in different contexts and that kind of thing. So uh, I'm curious to know, you kind of managed to create already a research program earlier on, have these contacts with different people, get projects going. What was the impetus or the catalyst for you to decide to do a PhD? Why did you feel you wanted to do or needed to do a PhD? Uh, well, I was hoodwinked, Sarah. I was hoodwinked by two brilliant oh. people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is probably worth telling the story because I think it, it really does speak to, uh, to to mentorship and to um, and to just the 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 gift of working with really committed people. And um, so um, 
this is probably 2016 or so. I, I've been really fortunate to be geographically close to Vancouver, um, as I've seen you up there before, um, and, and have, um, was sort of adopted by, um, by the folks at Chess um, at UBC. And so uh, both, both Kevin and Glenn have been really um, generous mentors um, to me for years. And I've gone back and forth probably at least once or twice a year to go up there and, and talk about projects and you know, uh, hear people give talks, et cetera. And so um, I will say that when I, uh, again, the, the theme of feeling lost and confused, I, I had progressed through the promotional structure here um, towards associate professor, which at the University of Washington um, takes a lot of pressure off of us. We have a promotional clock at the assistant professor level. And so I had this wonderful privilege of, of going over the hurdle towards associate professor, which, you know, in many ways takes the pressure off, but also in many ways opens this sort of limitless door of like, well, what do I, what do I want to work on now? And what can I do? And, and so I actually found that to be a bit dizzying and, uh, and an opportunity to kind of step back um, and kind of think about the things that I was doing. I think one of the things that I'd been, I think, sort of struggling with in my own mind was that clinical reasoning at, at the time when I was thinking about this was really um, talked about as an act of problem solving. And most of the work that was out there were were things like paper cases that would give the reader information about a case. And there were various ways that we could manipulate the information that was given or the testing conditions. And a lot of what was written about really was based on these paper cases or electronic cases that tended to narrow towards a particular diagnosis, which informed a particular treatment. And, and that's you know, how we were able to measure differences in performance and those sorts of things. I will say that that was really interesting to me, but was very different than what I was feeling in practice. I think problems were much messier. And I think actually a lot of the work that you've done and a lot of the work that um, Carolyn Moulton has done around problems that were undifferentiated and how does one actually move through those experiences in ways that are a little bit more iterative and the information itself isn't as reliable and you're dealing with this natural ambiguity of clinical findings or you know what does this test mean and those sorts of things so I was struggling with that in the context of professionally being in the space where I was able to to actually pivot and maybe do something different. And so um, and so I sought mentorship and drove north to Vancouver and uh, Kevin and Glenn sat with me, I mean, for hours around a table and we kind of mapped out these ideas of here's some different ways that you might wanna think about exploring these things. And, uh, and I'll never forget at the end of this, um, Kevin turned toward me and he said, well, John, have you ever thought about doing a PhD? And I sort of said, well, heck no, I have no interest in that at all. <laughs> I had done a master's during fellowship. It was, you know, professionally, it wasn't going to change um, really anything in terms of my roles or, or things like that, opportunities here. Um, and, and, you know, I think Kevin in his very generous way said, you know, this looks really interesting. Um, this looks like a PhD and we, we will support you whether you decide to do a PhD or not, you know, in thinking about these projects. But if you ever wanted to kind of dedicate yourself towards a program of research, this is what this could, you know, something like this could look like. Mm -hmm. And I said, thank you very much. I'm not interested. <clears throat> and by the time I'd driven the three hours back to Seattle, I decided I was going to do it. So oh! uh, that was uh, <laughs> 
and then I just had to negotiate with my 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 daughters and my wife around um, various different things. And so my daughter my daughters negotiated that if I do it, they would get a new dress at the defense ceremony if if and when I made it to that. And my wife's um, only obligation was that she would get to come uh, with me to Maastricht um, to do the the defense ceremony. So I think uh, all those pieces kind of fell into place relatively quickly. Uh, and again, you know, I had. Glenn has as this um, again. Glenn and Kevin as these amazing mentors, which ultimately ended up being sort of Glenn as my primary mentor, which again opened up these doors for um, what ended up being my dissertation um, team as well. So I was really lucky. Like it actually wasn't that hard of a decision. It fit fit into my life actually quite well professionally. It was the work I already wanted to do, and I was far enough to, along to know that I wanted to do this work already, and I knew who the people were that I wanted to work with, and mm -hmm. so it was just. A natural extension of the stuff I've been doing. Something during that drive that you heard or what? <laughs> Three hours uh, and you change. Yeah, I'm not sure what it was. It's, uh, you know, solitude gives one time yeah. to reflect. And uh, I don't, I can't remember what was on the, on the radio or anything yeah. like that. I think I was just thinking about the possibility. I think for me, I think what I knew at that stage of my career was that, um, an experience like that would would marshal mentorship in a way that was very different. And I think, you know, particularly the access to having Glenn as my mentor and having really regular conversations with him, to me, was the incentive. I think, um, again, professionally, it wasn't going to change too much here for me, um, but I got to get together with him you know, weekly um, sometimes or more times than uh, once a week um, to talk through ideas. And and it was just an amazing, amazing experience. It's, it's interesting. I think the things that I've reflected upon after the PhD, PhD people tell me like, well, what's changed you know, professionally? And actually not a lot has has changed professionally, but I, I see mentorship in a really different way, having been mentored um, mm. for the for the last four years by um, by Anique and Pim. This is Anique De Bruyne and Pim Tunison and and Glenn uh, Regeer, who were my doctoral team. Um, they were just incredibly generous and patient um, with me, but also with each other, and in ways that I um, really took a lot away or, uh, around that in terms of how to support others and, and think about, um, bringing others into people's lives as mentors. Um, and so anyway, I just, I, I thought that was incredibly, um, I, I grew a lot through that experience, I think. I'm glad you're sharing that because, uh, and I appreciate it because I was going to ask you, after your PhD and having gone through that experience, because PhD is a very heavy, if you have really good mentors, very significant mentorship experience. How has it translated into you being a mentor of your residents or fellow physicians or whoever you are helping with? Like, What are the things that you borrow from them that you are now actively using in your mentorship style? Yeah. Um, well, so I think I, I will say I... I feel like I continue to grow as a mentor and the mentor that I was, um, you know, when I started our medical education research fellowship in 2000, I think it was 13 is very different than the mentor I am now. I was certainly still figuring it out. Um, I think the first thing I would say is, and I, I've learned this with my work of the students too, is that all of these things are situated within relationships. And so if, if people don't feel like you have their best interests in mind, across not just the work, but their lives. I think 
you can't say anything that's going to convince them um, otherwise that it's that, that what you're going to tell them is useful. So I think that's the first bit is I think I, I, you know, one of the things that's probably worth mentioning is this doctoral program that I did was almost entirely through a pandemic <laughs> as well, mm -hmm. which as an emergency physician was a really hard time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the things that was very um, uh, fulfilling for me was I got to step out of what was a fairly chaotic space. You may not remember this, but Seattle was the first site of COVID um, in the United States. So a lot of the stresses of figuring out what to do and um, you know, how to keep people safe and all those things was was a, a big lift um, here initially, especially, but, you know, we were kind of flying the plane while building it. And, mm -hmm. and I was able to have a protected hour or two every week that I could step aside and have these wonderfully kind people, two of whom were not clinicians, um, ask how I was doing and, you know, check in on those things. And I think those things, you know, to me, I learned that, that, that mentorship was very much embedded in this sort of sense of love and kindness and generosity and beneficence and those sorts of things, which of course I always knew, but I felt it in a, in a really intense way um, during that experience. So I, I think that I'm, I'm probably more attentive to that than I was when I started as a mentor, you know, 10, 12 years ago. I think the other piece is, is recognizing that a diversity of perspectives is often the most valuable thing to help people along and, and having to, um, to give, first of all, to acknowledge that those other perspectives are really valuable um, for the mentee, even if I don't necessarily agree with them. And also recognizing that there's always a degree of, of negotiation around all projects. And so I think, you know, what I could see amongst my mentors, which I now very much see as, as a mentor among many mentors for my mentees, is that, you know, a lot of the ways that the mentors um, interact with each other is important for the mentee because the, what I don't want is the mentee to be left navigating that, right? I'm trying to make all your different mentors happy. So I think, um, so I, I've learned some some skills in sort of knowing when to push and when to not, uh, when to let things go. I think sometimes having some offline conversations with other mentors to sort out why we're having a disconnect around an idea or a, an approach, I think is really important. Um, and also just recognizing that sometimes I'm not the best mentor and I'm oh, for a person or I'm, I'm not the right mentor for them, or that, the, that this experience is an opportunity for them to build a relationship with somebody that's not me. Um, and so one of the things that I've had always done implicitly, but now actually try to do more explicitly is for, we, I direct a fellowship where our junior faculty come and spend two years honing an interest of their own and we are very deliberate about saying this is your interest your niche this is this is not you know us imprinting on you and so our fellows do very different things and one of the things that we try to do for all of our fellows projects is to find a mentor outside of the university of washington so you know we'll have a you know the senior mentor on their project is never me you know in fact i very happily try to take the second to last authorship position primarily as a way to support the fellow and and to do the work without any sort of feeling that it's an obligation towards towards me it's their opportunity to build a relationship with a with somebody else and i our fellows have been very successful in finding these wonderful people in our hpe community um, who are happy to engage with projects with them and then when they finish their fellowship they have you know an additional mentor an additional community um, uh, that can support them whether they stay here um, at uw or go elsewhere yeah that's a great reflection like advocacy relationships negotiation 
those things are kind of the most important parts more than the knowledge itself. And the part of what you said about knowing when you're not the right mentor, I think is the hardest. <laughs> Very much. It is hard. Well, and I feel like I, I mean, honestly, I think my, my, the, the fellows that I tend to mentor end up knowing much more about a topic than I do. Um, and so I think I'm happy to play the role of the of the reviewer effectively. The, mm-hmm. If I if I'm a I'm an you know I'm an informed reviewer, but not informed to the degree that that you know they are the expert on a topic. And so a lot of this is like, how do we make these real these ideas that you're thinking about real to people who don't know anything about them, and um, make it make sense to reviewers who are not deep deep into this world of whatever they're interested in. Um, and so I, I think that's that's a kind of generalist approach to a lot of things. That's sort of like how I think about my clinical work too. I'm rarely the expert of experts around clinical problems, but I, I know enough to to know when I need help or um, have a sense that someone needs to be seen quicker or, or longer um, or, or in a longer time frame, et cetera. Yeah. Or ask a question in a different way as well. Helps. Or ask a question differently, yeah. I have one more question about the PhD, and then I want to move into what we call like the small things in life uh, kind of questions. So, and, and this is my own curiosity. You explore like clinical reasoning in your PhD, but a key word in your thesis was uncertainty. And I was wondering, what was a surprising insight that you learned about uncertainty in your work that you were not expecting that maybe got you by, oh, wow. This is new. This is interesting. I might take it in a different direction. Yeah. So I think I think the first thing is um, we started this process by actually doing a bit of a dive around the term uncertainty. And I would say, first of all, uncertainty means really different things to different people. And so um, that's not a surprise. But I think that was important for me to, first of all, focus in on the the lived experience of the individual as the uncertainty I was curious about. It's not statistical uncertainty. It's not sort of philosophical uncertainty. It's, you know, this is a clinician in a space working with a clinical problem who doesn't know what might happen, doesn't know what to do, combination of those two things. So I think um, it's not really a surprise, but I think that refinement around what I'm talking about was, was, I think, the first step. We were really interested in this idea of comfort. And I think probably the, you know, the, the assumption we began with was, was that you know, experts could could move through these spaces of uncertainty with comfort because they had expertise and have seen these problems before and have seen themselves kind of unravel or get themselves out of tricky situations. And I think probably that the early and really important insult, uh, insight was that they are never comfortable, actually. Mm-hmm. They're never totally comfortable. And that com- comfort very much exists on this dynamic spectrum between comfort and discomfort. And and actually, when you're at those extremes, I think that's very much aligned with what Vicky LeBlanc had talked about, which was sort of, you're at this sense of eustress, like I'm actually, that there's no uncertainty there. I know that I'm doing fine. And distress, like I know I'm I'm beyond my bounds of experience or abilities or whatever, but all that space in between is this sort of um, liminal space of comfort and discomfort. And I think that was probably the most important insight for me. I think just recognizing that people were moving along the spectrum in their own idiosyncratic ways and, and that that was really informing how they were 
you know, paying attention to the things around them or thinking through about the resources that they might use to manage this experience, be they material resources or physical resources um, or people resources um, kinds of things. Um, and that they're, they're always, you know, they have these opportunities to reevaluate where they themselves are feeling um, in this sense. I think the other piece is that the, the idiosyncrasy there, I think, is really important and, and recognizing just how different you know, three different people in the same room might be feeling about the same situation. And that was really evident in our reflections with trainees as, you know, trainees had a really hard time getting a sense of their own uh, degree of comfort or discomfort. If they felt comfort, they didn't trust it. If they mm -hmm. felt discomfort, they didn't trust that either. They weren't sure if it was discomfort because it was a hard or tricky case, or it was discomfort because they were learning. Um, and so I think that insight of, of kind of one's own self-regulation and self-monitoring being really different has helped me to pay attention to that a little bit differently as a, as a preceptor um, and recognizing that there are times where you know, I'm feeling a lot of discomfort where I don't feel that others around me are feeling that and, and really trying to explicate that um, in those moments of saying those things. Like I'm, you know, I've, I've, I don't know, I, I've found myself being probably more op openly vulnerable about my own insecurities about those moments because I want them to know that I'm actually sensing some complexity that that they may not, may not be paying attention to. I would also say that I'm I'm very much attuned to that sense in others in a different way now. I will ask people like, "How are you feeling about this case?" Um, even though I may be feeling this sense of very strong comfort, they may be on the totally the opposite end of the spectrum. That's an opportunity for either me to pay attention to things that I've missed or to help walk them along towards. All right, here's why I'm reassured. You know, this is a problem that I think we can get ourselves out of safely. You know, here's a resource that I I I know we have here that will you know, disambiguate this in a way that'll make you feel differently about that. So um, I think that's probably the most important insight for me. Well, I really liked how you describe it uh, because this kind of shows the key insights that you learn from your research that also translated into your practice as an educator. So that's a great example. Thank you for sharing. So now we're going into these uh, two or three questions about the small things in life. I hear you a number of times talking about your family. It seems to be a very important part of uh, your life. And I was wondering in which ways have, especially your daughters, changed or shaped the way you think about curiosity in general? Hmm. Uh, well, it's a great question. I mean, viewing the, the world through the the lens of your children, I think, uh, from the various, very, very early stage, you see, start seeing little things differently, right? So I think in terms of things that you take for granted, your little ones will point at and, you know, want you to explore with them. Um, I think now, you know, my, I have a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old. They very much have their own identities and their own ideas and are are pushing back on sort of traditional constructions of all sorts of different things. Um, so I think there's there's that. I think the other piece is just sort of feeling like, you know, as parents of, you know, as white parents of white children in this world, um, I think we very much want our children to, to recognize all the various privileges that go through walking through the world in this way. And I think a lot of what, um, I will say my wife is particularly good at sort of pushing in our family is this this notion of 
you know, trying to make sure that we are educating our kids about others' perspectives and other perspectives and um, the obligation that we all have for um, exploring those things through, you know, reading or, you know, putting ourselves into spaces where, you know, there's there's more diversity than we have in our neighborhood, for example, or um, trying to think about the things we put up on, on the walls of our home and, and various different things that help to in some ways um, unsettle the privilege that um, that is sort of just natural in being who, who we are. Um, I would say that's probably the curiosity we, we try to instill in our kids more than anything. I think that idea of, well, why is it this way? And I, I think uh, I will say my, my younger daughter in particular uh, around issues of gender um, uh, is so good at just being like, well, why is it that way? Why isn't my the team, you know, the club soccer team that I support, why aren't they on television? And, you know, why aren't, uh, why aren't these women who are the best players in the world being paid the same way as the other players in this, in the city? And so I think those sorts of questions around kind of where they, they sit in society and the way that society is constructed and the ways that these systems tend to reinforce, um, you know, all the norms that are inherent in power and those sorts of things. That's the curiosity in our family that, that we try to instill um, mm. as best as we can. And I'm sure we, we have gaps, many of them, but um, that's, that's probably the, the most important thing that I would say is um, in our family of kind of tr- trying to have children who are good citizens of the world. Um, I would say the other thing, Sarah, that I didn't mention that was very much part of my identity that we've tried to continue in our family is travel. Um, wow. One of the one of the real benefits of growing up in a family with two parents who were um, academics was we had every summer off. And so we, I was really lucky to, you know, we would go on these camping trips in our uh, 240 uh, Volvo diesel sedan or d- diesel station wagon. We would chug our way through the Southwest or up the coast in California. Or I lived abroad um, as a 12 year old for a semester in, in London. And I think travel for us is a really nice way to push our ourselves and our, our children into zones of of discomfort of some degree, um, at, at least to kind of see a very different part of of the world and you know through others' lives. So I said I think that's just another reflection of trying to kind of step outside of our of our own comfort zones to some degree. Great. So just think about anybody. And I want to know anybody meaning you don't have to pick a fellow or, or your colleague. It's anybody. Who would you like to trade trade places with for one month? Ooh. This is gonna take me a second. Yeah, no worries. I think I might trade places with Pim Tunison. Oh, okay. We know him, so you gotta tell us why. <laughs> well, I think Pim is is one of the smartest people I know. And Pim is now sitting in a place where he is um, he is mentoring this huge collection of people in his role at Maastricht. And I think I, I could not do his job well for a month, but just having the experience of spending a whole month doing that, of mentoring all these different people, I think would just be fascinating. He must just see this amazing cross-section of um, of health professions, education, research, Um through these various different really bright people who are doing doctoral work in really different spaces. So I think that would be fascinating. 
the other reason I was I would trade with Pim is I would love to spend another month in Maastricht, which <laughs> I was only be able to be there for a few days. So the idea of you know being like Pim and riding a bicycle through Maastricht for a month yeah. as I as I moved from my mentorship meeting to mentorship meeting sounds really lovely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like the idea of picking a person so you go to a place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my last question is usually the one that people know I ask is like if if you were if you hadn't become a physician. Uh, medical education, researcher, anything that you're now, what do you think you have chosen? And it's open to anything, any arts, crafts, skills, whatever. Well, I guess it depends on how far back I could go. One of you the do. things Yeah, one of the things that I I realized very late in college is I feel like I actually missed my wrong, I I, I took the wrong major. Um, When I was a senior in college, I took Art History 101 and absolutely loved it. And it was just the best class I took in college. And it happened to be the the course that at least the the, the school that I went to was, it was the course that everybody said, this is the one that you have to take. It It was what Williams was really known for. And it was just, um, especially as, a, as someone who'd been lucky enough to do some traveling and having been pl- you know, to a variety of different places and gone to various different museums, I was seeing the, the art and the architecture of my, of you know, at least of Western civilization that I'd seen and um, just absolutely loved the experiences of going into the museums and thinking really carefully about a, you know, whether it was a frieze or a painting or whatever it was and trying to sort of understand the, the reasons why it might have been done the way it was or um, those sorts of things. So um, I think if I was to, to really back up, I would have told my 18 year old self to take art history as a freshman. And I think my life could have taken a very different um, different path. I will say it's it's interesting as, I, as I've reflected, I've reflected on that actually a number of times because we've done art observations with our students, for example, and th- this is medical students, um, or done it as a faculty development thing here where we'll go and you know look at art together. And we have a very um, skilled dermatologist in our, on our college faculty who does this as, as part of her teaching. Um, I will say there's, there's actually a lot of commonalities of trying to make sense of visual information or, or history or context that I think is actually very relevant to what we do in medicine. And, and those same sort of things that I find really challenging and interesting in my work as an emergency physician, I think I would have found in trying to make sense of you know, the history or the context in which people do their craft. Um, I myself am completely non-artistic, but have a great appreciation of people who do have those skills. So maybe that would have been the direction I would have taken. I could have been a art historian and educator or something like that. Cool. Or a museum director. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. <laughs> well, John, thank you very much for your time today. It was really enjoyable to have this conversation with you. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you everyone for listening. I will see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.